You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 to 20 is going to be our text this morning that we're going to walk through. When I uh, first kind of felt the impulse uh, from the Lord to preach from Revelation uh, chapter 1 in this text, I called Jeff and I just wanted to make sure. I said, Jeff, I'm thinking about preaching from Revelation 1, 9 to 20. Like, is that okay with you? I assure you, I will, I will be sure to tell uh, your church exactly when Jesus is coming back and exactly how he's coming back. No, I didn't say that, but in fact, I, I said nothing, nothing about the return of Christ. It's just all about Jesus. And he was like, well... I just preached on this text over Easter, but I really want you to go ahead and preach on it. I'm like, no, 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 that's okay. If you've already preached. He said, no, I want you to preach on this, given what you've already told me about your outline and, and all of that. And so with a little bit of fear and trepidation that I'm going to bore you to death, uh, I, I'm going to preach from Revelation 1, 9 to 20. Hopefully, this will be reminding you and refreshing you of what you already know, what you've already learned from Pastor Jeff uh, this past Easter. And maybe along the way, the Lord will impress on, on you some things some, some golden nuggets maybe that you can pick up along the way and that we will all walk away from here all the more edified and all the more sanctified and he will be all the more glorified. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Revelation, uh, one of the main reasons for the book of Revelation is perseverance. One of the main reasons for the entire book, it's perseverance. And it was written that we might hold fast until Jesus comes. He says it explicitly in chapter 2, verse 25. Hold fast, he said, until I come. That is, keep the faith. Persevere. Keep on keeping on. One of the main reasons. And one of the recurring themes of Revelation is Jesus himself. It's, it's not only his revelation to us, this last book of the Bible, but he's the focus of it. His attributes, his, his coming, of course, his judgment, and last but not least, his victory. Victory in Jesus, my Savior. Revelation, all about Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus last, Jesus always. And this passage is no different. Here in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, it's all about what we can and should expect with Jesus. Not just later, certainly later, but not just later, now as well. It's all about what we can and should expect with Jesus now and later. So you follow along. We'll take it at a section at a time. Let's start with verse 9. I, John, that's the Apostle John. I, John, he says, your brother and partner in the tribulation. He's writing to the church and certainly some local churches, as we'll see here in just a minute, but thereby the church at large, including us, your brother and partner, we are brothers and partners with him, brothers and sisters in Christ, partners with John. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, that is, that go hand in hand with Jesus, hand in hand with a relationship with Jesus. That's the idea of in Jesus, connected to Jesus. I'm your partner and, and brother in these things, these things that go hand in hand with Jesus. I, John, 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The island of Patmos, you just need to know, was their Alcatraz. Our Alcatraz in our day, you familiar with Alcatraz? That island off the coast of California that used to be a prison. It was kind of the most secure because it's on an island in the middle of the ocean. Like Patmos was their Alcatraz, this rocky island off the coast of Asia Minor. And John was exiled there for preaching. Preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Small aside here, just for a second. I wonder how at risk we would be to be exiled by the authorities for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. How at risk are you? I hope every single one of you is supremely at risk, just like John was at risk for the word of God, adhering to it, holding fast to it, and of course the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John says. That is, he was under the Spirit's influence, the Holy Spirit's influence. In this case, a state of mind where he saw visions and heard sounds. Various degrees, obviously, of being in the Spirit. Various things that we might encounter from the Holy Spirit. In this case, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the day of worship, just like we are. He was under the Spirit's influence. I trust the same is true of you as you've walked in here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he writes, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Like a trumpet, a loud voice like a trumpet. My brother uh, played the trumpet. He was six years older than me. I had two brothers, six and eight years older than me. They, one played the trombone, the other played the trumpet. When my brother played the trumpet, he was very good. He would close his door in, in, in the basement of our home, and if you were outside a football field length away, you could still hear him. It, it, it cut through everything, walls included. Certainly my ears. The voice of Jesus is like that. Make no mistake. Cuts through all the noise. Perfectly clear. Especially when it's right behind you. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I practiced all of those. Seven churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven churches of Asia Minor. A little map here for you. Asia or Asia Minor was basically modern day uh, Turkey. And this was in the Roman Empire of the day. Rome, of course, you know, the boot into the Mediterranean would be over to our left and over to our right. Uh, a good distance would be the land of Israel. And, and here we have what's referred to as Asia Minor. In the middle of Asia Minor, we have these seven churches you can see there at the top. Pergamum and Thyatira and kind of the, the brown print there. And Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and Laodicea. Seven churches there, representative of all churches, and strategic. 
These churches were both representative and strategic. Representative of all churches and strategic because they were the distribution centers for the seven postal districts of Asia Minor. And so if you wanted to get the word out about something, if you wanted to get a letter out to something, if you wanted to mass distribute something, you would send it to these seven places. Hello. John wanted to get the word out. And the revelation that he had received from Jesus. All of which reminds us that Revelation is written to real people at a real time in real places just like us. People just like us walking with Jesus Jesus for various lengths of times. People just like us with various expectations of Jesus, right or wrong, at various times in our lives. And John starts with a very important part of those expectations that's often left out. And that's difficulty. With Jesus, first of all, expect difficulty. With Jesus, expect difficulty. Adversity. Obstacles. Trouble. You watch the, the, the Chosen series. Becky and I love that series. And, the, and there's that theme song, Trouble, Trouble. There's trouble that goes hand in hand with Jesus. Look at verse 9 again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, mark that, the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom work, and patient endurance go hand in hand with a relationship with Jesus. They're all part of being in Christ. They're all part of being connected to him. They're all part of being in union with him. Not only that, but they imply difficulty. All three of these things that go hand in hand with Jesus imply difficulty. There's difficulty in tribulation because well, it's bad by definition. It's hard. There's difficulty in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, because it's opposed. It's opposed by Satan and it's opposed by the world. You don't need me to tell you that. The kingdom of God, of which we are a part, is opposed. And it makes it difficult. And then, of course, there's the difficulty of patient endurance. Once again, by definition, which one of us is patient in anything, let alone enduring, bearing up underneath something that's hard. Walking with Jesus involves difficulty. There's no getting around it. It's John's kind of shorthand way here of reminding those in Asia Minor and us by extension of that very truth. Listen, loved one, if someone told you that salvation means a life of bliss or that's what you expected when you first received Christ, you were wrong and they were deceptive. Because the truth is trials and tribulations are a part of the Christian life. They're a part of the life we live. That's one of the reasons that things like the prosperity gospel, heavy on the quote, unquote, the prosperity gospel is so wrong. You know, just give your life to Jesus and all your problems will go away, including your financial ones. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, 
in the world, you will have tribulation. Will have. And 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many, many. In James 1.2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. In Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you. Notice that word, granted. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us to suffer. So John's not telling us something new here in Revelation. He's reiterating something true. That with Jesus... In relationship with him, we should expect the difficulties of trials and tribulations. We should expect the difficulty of kingdom work. We should expect the difficulty of patient endurance. And not just later during the great tribulation as Revelation goes on to lay out, but now. The great tribulation is just an intensification of what the church already suffers and has throughout the course of history. With Jesus, we should expect difficulty. Unfortunately, if you're like I am, by default, and I'm pretty sure you are, we think that we're the exception to difficulty. Especially in these United States. And we strive to ensure that we're the exception to difficulty in our walk with Jesus by catering to our flesh instead of the Spirit. Oh, just enough of the Spirit to make ourselves feel good and assuage our conscience, but we tend to cater to the flesh to avoid all difficulty as much as possible in our life. We do, don't we? We live like the world instead of the kingdom to avoid the difficulty that goes hand in hand with the kingdom. We tend to live for ourselves instead of the Lord. We tend to sit in compliance instead of standing for Christ. That's our MO, or at least that's our tendency, God help us. So that when suffering does come our way, whether from the fallenness of this world or the acts of evil people, we're surprised. We're crushed. We're devastated. Sometimes to the point of shaking our fist at God and saying, how could you? Why would you? But that doesn't make us exempt. That doesn't mean we're going to see any less tribulation in our walk with Christ. It doesn't mean we're going to see any less kingdom work and any less need to patiently endure. Loved one, if you are in Jesus, if you are with him, it's part of life. Difficulty is. Not that, not that peace doesn't reign every step of the way. Don't get me wrong. Not that joy doesn't abound and glory fill our souls. But that trials and tribulations on account of the word of God and the testimony of our Lord are unavoidable.
They're unavoidable. Which means if we don't manage our expectations accordingly, both now and later, we won't hold fast. We'll give up the ship and show we were never sailors. With Jesus, expect difficulty. Difficulty from trials and tribulations. Difficulty from serving the Lord in kingdom work. And difficulty in patient endurance. That's the first expectation. The second comes from verses 12 to 17. Check it out. John continues, he says, then I turned to see. Remember, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. First he heard, then he saw. It's a pattern that we see repeated in the book of Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And by the way, I, I tell my church all the time as we're working through the book of Revelation and that the descriptions, these are apocalyptic descriptions. They're not meant to paint a picture for us. They're meant to describe something for us. Big, big difference. If you tend in your mind, if you try to paint a, a mental picture of the things that you find in the book of Revelation, you're going to end up being like way weirded out. I mean, crazy weirded out. Because they're not meant to, to paint a picture, and they're meant to describe some very pertinent truths. This is no different. I'll explain in a minute. Verse 14, the hairs of his head, as he saw this son of man, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, shiny bronze, refined in a furnace, hardened. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. First the trumpet, the roar, then the roar. In verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. There's uh, exhibit A for not meant to be an actual picture. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I hear this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let's stop there. I fell, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet, at his feet, as though dead. The second expectation with Jesus is this. Expect to be floored. With Jesus, not only expect difficulty, but in the very best sense of the phrase, expect to be floored. Expect to be overwhelmed. Expect to be amazed. Expect to be awestruck. I don't even know, since our girls are long out of the home, I don't even know what the cool way to say any of those things is anymore. So I, I don't even try, end up looking like a fool. But whatever it is, substituted it in there for floored, like overwhelmed, amazed, awestruck. And just like John was in verse 17, he was floored. Literally, literally he was floored. Because that's what infinite power does. It floors us. That's, that's what searing holiness does. 
It, it, it renders us a puddle on the floor because of our sinfulness. That's what reverence leads to. It leads to being floored. Listen, if you're not floored by Jesus, at least metaphorically, you haven't encountered Jesus. Not up close. Not with the eyes of your heart. Because he's that amazing. He's that incredible. He's that overwhelming. Just like John describes. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I heard a voice and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. I'll come back to that later. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Do you see that? One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The robe and the sash probably symbolize his dignity and authority. Like many of the earthly rulers of that day wore. They would wear these long robes. Sometimes in reenactments you see it. They're long robes and they have the sash kind of diagonally across their chest. It, It symbolizes dignity and authority. And the phrase one like a son of man all that refers to his divine anointing. His divine anointing as our Savior, our Deliverer. Expect to be floored by his divine anointing. I've got four little thoughts here for you. I want to commend to you on this point. With Jesus, expect to be floored, first of all, by his divine anointing. His divine anointing. It comes from the Old Testament in the prophecy of Daniel. That one like a son of man, Daniel writes... One, like a son of man, would come from God, be anointed by God, and rule over all of God's creation. We find that first back in Daniel. That one, like a son of man, would come from God, be anointed by God, and would rule over all. And so, son of man started as a description. A description. And then during the intertestamental times, the, what we refer to as the 400 silent years, because there was no prophet of God that was speaking during that time, let alone writing. During the intertestamental times, there was still a, a religious thing going on. And they began to use this one like a son of man as a title. It started out as a description, but they began to use it as a title that was synonymous with the Messiah, the coming Christ, to whom they were all looking forward. And so, Christ literally means anointed one. Literally means someone chosen and empowered by God for special purposes. Son of man, Messiah, Christ, different words to describe and title the very same person. And that person is Jesus, of course. Not only because he fits the description here in Revelation 1 or Daniel 7, but because son of man. Did you know this? Son of man is the most common title that Jesus used for himself in the Gospels. Started as a description. Became a title. Was used by Jesus himself to basically say, I'm the one anointed by God, sent by God to rule over all. And John reaffirms it here in Revelation 
And so when John quotes Daniel 7, saying that he saw one like a son of man, he's referring to Jesus as our Messiah, Jesus as our Christ, the one anointed by God, chosen and empowered to save our souls, the one chosen and empowered to save your soul and my soul, the one chosen and empowered to build his kingdom, the one chosen and empowered to intercede for us even as we speak right this very moment. He's the one. Jesus is the one. No wonder John was floored. No wonder. He was face to face with the exalted Christ. Face to face with the one of old. Face to face with the one sent by God. In all of his glory. Plus, verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, probably referring to his purity and wisdom. Three different ways to say so, to emphasize the purity and holiness, searing holiness of the one who was standing before him. And his eyes, second part of verse 14, were like a flame of fire, probably indicating piercing omniscience. Eyes with a flame of fire, piercing omniscience, able to see right through us, able to see past our facades and into our very souls and to know every last thing about us even before we know it about us. That kind of piercing omniscience. That kind of eyes as a descriptor, flaming fire. He sees it all and he knows it all, Jesus does. Good and bad. Good and bad. And he acts accordingly with perfect wisdom. In ways that are so much higher than ours, we can't fathom it. Oh, the, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Because of his piercing omniscience. Like, I'm floored by that. I'm floored that he knows my sin. I'm floored that he knows exactly what he wants me to do with my life and that he's going to make a way and that he's going to make it clear. I'm, I'm floored by that. I'm floored that he's going to make a way when there is no way. I'm floored by the fact that he knows what I need to do before I do. And he knows my motives better than I do. And he sees my sin more clearly than I do. It's piercing insight. With Jesus, expect to be floored by that. Expect to be floored by his piercing insight. His piercing insight. Next is his glorious power. Expect to be floored by his glorious power. Look at verse 15 on that one. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, probably indicating power and stability burnished, shiny bronze, power and stability. You can kind of imagine that. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, as in full of power and authority. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you have a sense, at least some sense, of what John is saying here and what John experienced from Jesus, we were at Niagara Falls years ago. I don't remember exactly when. We took one of those boat rides where they give you a poncho and you know, cover you up. You're like, what in the world do I need a poncho for? And you find out really quickly. 
The most awesome part of that entire boat, yard, boat ride for me was even, I don't know, a couple of hundred yards from the falls, as close as we got, the roar of the water shook my chest. It, it, like you can feel it, the roar of the water. You can feel the power of it. It's like when I was in college, my friends and I one time went to an air show and we snuck out onto the flight line when the Harrier jets were coming in and landing and then taking off again. Remember those jets? They, they had their thrusters swiveled and so they could rise straight up and it, it just made the, the thrust all the more powerful. And we were about 75 yards from this Harrier and literally as, it, as the roar was overwhelming me, I looked down at my chest, I looked at my friend's chest, our chests were literally vibrating like a a big subwoofer speaker in the back of somebody's car pulls up next to you at a, at a parking light. It's power. Authority. And there wasn't a single person in that entire area who could take their eyes off of that jet. The power and authority of the thrusters commanded attention. So too with Jesus. Only way, way more. His voice, like the roar of many waters and the thunderous vibration of jets. He's that powerful. Loved ones, he's that powerful. But that's not even it. Verse 16, in his right hand he held Seven stars. I'll come back to the stars, but his grasp of them is a symbol of sovereignty and and control. Power in and of itself. More power. Sovereignty. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword symbolizing divine judgment. And so we have all these things coming out of the mouth of Jesus and all these different descriptions of them. In In the one sense, the voice of Jesus powerfully commands our attention. And in another sense, it powerfully defeats his enemies. Sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in the full grand scope of things, it's the voice of Jesus that created the world. It's the voice in Jesus that rules the world. And it's the voice of Jesus that will defeat and destroy the world. He's that powerful. Just by his voice. To speak things into existence. And take them out of existence. No wonder John was floored. No wonder we should be as well. And then last year, expect to be floored by his powerful glory. His glorious power and his powerful glory. Oh, don't miss this. Second part of verse 16. His face was like the sun shining in full Strength, blindingly glorious, blindingly brilliant, never to be eclipsed, never clouded, never dimmed. If if you've ever tried to look at the sun, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's powerfully glorious. When we see a, a, a sunrise in all of its glory, like it's overwhelming in the best sense of the word. When we see a sunset, it's overwhelming in the best sense of the word. There's power there in a day like today where it's going to beat down. 
in all of its brilliance. You know that old worship song, I Can Only Imagine? It goes back a few years. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Or be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. The fact is, it's probably going to be all the above. But I'm pretty sure that we're going to start on the floor. I mean, think about it. The apostle John did, and he had already walked and talked with Jesus for three years. And he was still floored. That's going to be our first sighting when he returns. And I'm pretty sure that our eyes will behold his anointing like never before. And our souls will feel his insight like never before. And our hearts, his power, and our face, his glory. But listen, listen, it's not just for later. It's for now. Every time we worship together, we should expect to be floored by Jesus. Every time we pray, as was talked about earlier in our service, we should expect to be floored. Every time we read the Bible, his voice speaking, every time he leads, like we can imagine. We can because his power and glory and insight and anointing is true right now. And of all things, we should expect it. With Jesus, expect to be floored. And then finally, with Jesus, expect peace. Expect difficulty, expect to be floored, and expect peace. Look at verse 17 again. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Yes, there's difficulty in walking with Jesus, but there's also peace. Oh, there's peace. There's, there's a sense of being at rest. Peace that surpasses, goes way beyond our understanding, way beyond our ability to understand how in the world there can be peace in the midst of the difficulty. But with Jesus, that's exactly the case. It's a supernatural, this peace that comes with Jesus, this peace that the Bible talks about of going way beyond our understanding is a supernatural contentment and confidence. That's the peace of Christ. It's a supernatural contentment and confidence. It's not self-confidence. Oh, hear this. It's not the world's kind of confidence. I'm talking about the peace that comes from a quiet 
confidence in God. I'm talking about the peace that comes in the strength that he provides, in the protection that he provides, not our own self-protection. John, look at verse 17. John says, he laid his right hand on me and say, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not, as in be at peace. Be at peace. I'm right here. I'm right here. Reinforced by his touch as John experienced it. Never underestimate the touch of Jesus. It's a gesture of calm and comfort. Like if you were to put your hand on the shoulder of a brother in Christ. It's a gesture of comfort and calm and peace. Especially so when it's in and of the Lord. It's a gesture of calm and comfort like the touch of his spirit in our souls. Whose hand is always on us. Whose peace is always there. Always available. It's not as though we have to wait until Jesus returns to experience his peace. We have it. We have it available right now. Always. But those aren't the only reasons. His voice and his touch for expecting peace with Jesus. There are at least three more in these verses. Three reasons we need not fear. Three reasons we can expect peace. First, he's firmly in control. With Jesus, expect peace because he's firmly in control. That comes from the phrase, I am the first and the last. Second part of verse 17, do you see it? I am the first and the last. In other words, I'm, I'm the one who's above all and over all, Jesus is saying. I'm the one who started it all, ends it all, and controls it all in between. It's an expression of sovereignty that if you trust it, if you believe it and trust it, it will dispel your fear and bring you peace. But you have to believe in such sovereignty of Jesus. You have to believe in the rest that he provides. Not only that, but the fact that he's alive indicates that he's firmly in control. I am the first and the last and the living one, verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's alive and he always will be, which means his control will never wane and never lapse. Which is why we can expect peace with Jesus. He's even in control of death itself. Second part of verse 18. I have the keys of death and Hades. The, the realm of the dead. Meaning that he's sovereign over who dies, who doesn't, and when. Numbering our days before we were even born. Securing our, our future the moment we believe and repent. Even before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians tells us. With Jesus, expect peace because he's firmly in control. Second, because he constantly holds us. Expect peace with Jesus because he constantly holds us. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, which is a reference to verse 16, and as for the mystery of the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus offers peace because he holds us. That's the idea of stars or angels there. Most likely, we can't be absolutely certain about this, but most likely angels, stars, refer to the pastors of the churches. To say that Jesus holds them as a way of holding us. And you don't have to be in church world very long to realize that is indeed the case. If you have a pastor like your pastor who is firmly in the grip of Jesus Christ, the church is good even in the midst of the swirl. But if you have a pastor who's not firmly in the grip of Jesus, then you have a church who is on shaky ground. It's true, isn't it? And so Jesus holds pastors as a way of holding all of us. A way of preserving us. A way of saying, no worries. I've got you. We can expect peace with Jesus because he constantly holds us. And last, there's peace with Jesus because he's always with us. He's always with us. Last part of verse 20. The seven lampstands, Jesus says, are the seven churches, referring to the golden lampstands that John saw in verse 13. With Jesus in the midst of those lampstands. The lampstands represent the churches as shining testimonies for Christ, and he's right smack dab in the middle of them. Right in the middle of us, Emmanuel with us. It's not just for Christmas. It's for every single day of the year. And oh, does this description give new meaning to that old children's song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. Oh, we sing that referring to ourselves and the light that Jesus gives us within. And that's totally true. Yes, yes. But in addition to that, we should be singing it with this in mind. This, this little light of mine. I'm going to let this shine because Jesus shines. Right here, right now. It's an affirmation of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Jesus, we acknowledge your presence. He's here. He's here. Offering peace that surpasses understanding even when the world's at war. Peace even when the nations rage. Peace even when your heart aches. Peace even when you've encountered loss. Peace even when you're convicted by sin. He's here. And with him, we can expect peace. With Jesus, expect peace. Not without difficulty, but also not without awe. Expect to be floored.